sometimes in our revivalism, we've gotten a little carried away while we're trying to work something up when really we have to pray it down. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. Go by any church, especially during the summer, and you might see that they're having revival next week. Or it could be happening as you drive by. Countless people have been saved at revival services, or they've rededicated their lives. But along with church history, there's a history of how church revival in the United States has come about, specifically three big revival movements of historic significance. On this episode of Level Paths, Dr. Jeff Van Gotham, pastor of Schofield Memorial Church in Dallas and adjunct professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, takes us on a ride back in time to America's birth when, as settlers began migrating westward, revival started to happen. What exactly is revival? Here's Rex. I'm excited today, Matt. We have one of my favorite people in all of creation with us today, Pastor Jeff Van Gotham, Dr. Van Gotham. He and I served together at, what was the name of that church again, Jeff? (laughs) Schofield Schofield Memorial Church in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Van Gotham has been in pastoral ministry for 40 years. He spent nearly 20 years as a senior pastor of East White Oak Church in Illinois and actually has returned there now in a different role as associate pastor of spiritual development and missions. Pastor Jeff has a heart for prayer and missions. He's a graduate of Central Michigan University. We won't hold it against you that you went to some school up in that one state up north, but we will applaud that you're a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. Both your THM and DMIN are from there. And you also recently have been serving as adjunct faculty at the seminary, working primarily with doctoral students who are rural and small town pastors. He grew up in uh, the small town of Norway, Michigan, up in the UP where they have, uh, what's that uh, potato thing that you eat there in the UP? Uh, pasties. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. Did yeah, you have yeah. one, Rex? I did. The only okay. time I've been in the UP, I had a pasty. Uh, Karen and Jeff have four daughters and four grandchildren. Jeff, thank you for being here. We want to dive right into this. Our topic today is prayer and revival movements in the church, but specifically in the rural church. I thought we would start today with you talking to us a little bit about the biblical concept of the burden of God in prayer and help us dissect that. It comes from the Hebrew word Masah, which is used a fair number of times in the Old Testament. And you don't see a lot of writing about it today, but in the older prayer literature, this was a prominent theme. So I encourage guys to go back and read some of the older writers in the life of prayer. And the burden of God comes from this thing of God being pained over the wickedness and sinfulness and waywardness of the world. And he himself has this pain, but he wants to deliver it to his servants. So in the Old Testament, you'll see, particularly in the life of some of the prophets, this word used in context where God is delivering his burden to the prophet. And the prophet receives this in his relationship with God. And as he receives it, it does something to him. It breaks him. It cleanses him of his selfishness and his own personal interests. And He begins to agree with God, and he rises up to go do something about what God is pained about in the world. 
And that, in a nutshell, if you analyze all the texts in which this word is used, it can be used of a, a literal burden, like a donkey carrying a burden, but then it refers to this spiritual burden that is received from God. And so from this, we get the theology that prayer is initiated by God, and it's our job to go to God and report for duty and receive from him that which he wants to convey to us through his word. And as we are under his burden, we begin to experience a, a life-changing, many people have referred to it as, you know, I have a burden to do this in the world, or I have a burden to go out and do that in the world. But it comes from God. And then uh, even in cases where this word is not used, you can see examples of it, of somebody being crushed under the will of God, God being pained over the world and the sorrow that uh, we imbibe as we are in a depth of a relationship with God. And as that sorrow come, we are crushed under it, and we long to agree with God and do God's will. We see it in the life of Nehemiah, for example, in chapter one, in that mighty prayer that he prayed there. You can go ahead to what the apostle Paul was saying in Romans uh, chapter 10, where he is saying, I'm just reading here, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that Israel be saved. And then he goes on to talk about in chapter 9 that he had great anguish and sorrow in his spirit and that he would even be cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. And so this is the burden of God. This is not an ordinary experience. This is something that I think if you study some of the greats like Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson and others and Amy Carmichael who went out into the world and really lived the crucified life in serving the Lord, it stems from this personal experience of the burden of God. And so really our motives in ministry, we often tend to draw them from Bible college or seminary or a conference or something like this. But passion for the will of God and doing the will of God in the world comes from the prayer closet. And I think this is something we have to get back to today. So Jeff, when we think about prayer and we think about the statement that you just said, that passion for the word of God comes from the prayer closet and that the primary means by which ministry is carried out is through the word of God, the preaching of the word of God and praying in response to the word of God is one writes that prayer is not the first word, but it's the second word. It's not initial speech, it's answering speech. Could you give us an overview of prayer and revival movements in America and church history? I think most who have studied it would agree that there have been three great revival movements in American history. First of all, the first great awakening, which was in the colonial days, and Jonathan Edwards is sort of the superstar of that one as he wrote uh, considerable material about it. It was largely led by pastors, largely in small town America, because America was, you know, in the colonial era there. I think the largest cities were Boston and New York City. And so it wasn't something that happened in the urban areas. There weren't any urban areas. It was largely in the countryside. And the prayer movement began really with uh, Solomon Stoddard and others, who was Jonathan Edwards' grandfather for some decades. They had been very concerned about a number of issues, the Indian issue and the war with the Indians, the encroachment of the French Catholics from the north in the colonies, 
the growing prosperity and secularism of American society, and there were calls for prayer. And these men understood the concept of revival, looking back to the Reformation, which you could characterize as a rather massive revival in those days. And they began to pray, and Edward circulated his uh, letter about prayer. And then suddenly God broke in. And, and when we speak about revival, we're talking about an extraordinary season of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I want to distinguish that from revivalism. Revivalism is uh, something we schedule to try to work up revival, but true revival is a sovereign work of God where he moves upon his people to cleanse his church and then awaken the lost and bring them in in extraordinary numbers. And so we had the first great awakening, which was largely in the 1730s, maybe up into the 1740s, and George Whitfield came over from England and was the great preacher of that revival. And then the second Great Awakening is a very interesting period of time, around about 1800 or so, and there were outbreaks of it and spreading of it all the way up until about 1840. People like to point to what happened at Yale when about two-thirds of the student body at Yale was converted around 1800, 1802. There was a man converted at Yale in 1807 named Ashiel Nettleton, and he became one of the primary movers of the Second Great Awakening. And he inherited really the mantle from Jonathan Edwards and the style of their ministry, which was serious, convicting preaching no promotion, no antics, no altar calls, no techniques, just serious preaching. And then they would just tell people, you know you're a sinner, you know you're lost, pray until God comes to you. That was really their only method, the preaching of the word. And Ashiel Nettleton uh, went to, uh, for over 10 years, went to many, many places which they called waste places or places without a settled pastor, without a good church. And he would stay there six months, maybe a year until revival came. And then he would move on to the next place, getting a settled pastor in there. And this went on from 1807 to almost to 1820. But then the interesting thing that happened in the Second Great Awakening is, remember, this is a time when America is moving out of the colonies, shifting westward, over the Appalachian Mountains, into Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, even Indiana, Illinois, and it became a frontier nation. And what happened is these mostly Calvinist, Presbyterian, Congregationalist pastors began to move into the South, into Virginia, and began to preach, and then many people were converted, and some Baptists came down and did the same. Some Methodists came from England and did the same. And then this whole thing sort of jumped over the mountains and began to spread west. And in time, the old Calvinist Presbyterian model began to recede. And the Methodists and Baptists began to grow. And along came this fellow in western New York named Charles Finney. And Charles Finney rejected the Calvinism of the old Presbyterian movement. He was very much a free will preacher, and he felt people needed to be persuaded to believe. They needed to be coerced to believe. And so all the methodology began to change, 
And he began to introduce long meetings, promotions, exciting speakers, altar calls, all sorts of new and modern methods. And so these two revival movements kind of clashed. And at one point, Ashiel Nettleton and Charles Finney met together and could not resolve their differences. And over time, the Finney wing, with all of that methodology, really became the dominant uh, vehicle of that revival. So this thing began to spread. So the Second Great Awakening, with all of its uh, comings and goings all the way up until about 1840, was really a powerful thing. And out of that came the Baptists and the Methodists and the Christian churches. And you can go down to the old camp meetings. They began to hold those on the frontier where thousands of people would gather and many, many were converted. And so many of the modern instruments and techniques like revival meetings and altar calls and so forth really were popularized in the Finney wing of the Second Great Awakening. So the Third Great Awakening, or what is most often called the Layman's Prayer Revival of 1858, was entirely different. It began in New York City in an urban area, there had been a banking crisis, and the uh, man at a church in New York City called the Old North Reformed Church uh, decided uh, to have a noonday prayer meeting. I want to go just backtrack and say one thing. The prayer movement of the Second Great Awakening is harder to pin down than the other two. It was on and off. It was not in a unified manner. And so we know Finney had great prayer warriors with him, but it wasn't as defined. But in the Third Great Awakening, in the Layman's Prayer Revival of 1858, there was a very defined prayer movement. This noonday prayer meeting began with just a few. Then the next week, there were many more, then many more. And soon every day, they were filling up this church at noon and praying, and people were being converted at the prayer meetings. Soon, all over the city of New York, massive prayer meetings erupted, and pastors began to throw open their churches in the evening. And really, it is believed that uh, tens of thousands of people were converted in New York City. The meetings were very simple. There was no denominationalism, no party spirit. People just gathered and they would ask for prayer for themselves and for others in a very quiet meeting in an hour. And this was mightily used of God to spread the gospel. And so then the Third Great Awakening or the Layman's Prayer Revival spread to other cities, to Albany, to all the way to Chicago, all the way to Denver, all the way to San Francisco, all over the country. and was probably the greatest and most widespread revival in American history and was characterized primarily by quiet prayer meetings. And then pastors joining in to give some leadership was very much lay led, very much spawned many, many new ministries and schools. It led to a massive enterprise of church planting in the latter half of the 19th century. Every American denomination grew by church planting in that period of time, all the way up until about 1900. And so those are considered the three widespread movement. And in the First Great Awakening, we can see 
the pastor-led prayer was a key. And then in the third great awakening, we see that lay-led prayer was a key. The second great awakening is a little bit harder to pin down. It was very much a wild and woolly movement. And anything you say about it would be an oversimplification. But uh, and then along in here, you know, the 20th century, you, you know, you had the Welsh revival. And there's much to say about that. That impacted America somewhat. And then in the post-World War II era, in the 50s and 60s, uh, many believe there was a moving of the spirit in America, which led to the founding of many of the parachurch organization, the campus ministries, the businessmen's fellowship. It was an era of great evangelism. But I think most church historians don't consider that on the level of the other awakenings. It's no surprise that you'll probably not find much about these three large-scale revivals in history books, but they played a significant role in the spiritual underpinnings of the United States, practically from day one. When we return, what does revival look like in rural America? Coming up on March 24th, 2022 at Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio, the Appalachian Ministry Conference, fulfilling your ministry in a post-COVID Appalachia. The keynote speaker is Dr. Tom Cheney, author of Church Revitalization in Rural America. This first ever Appalachian Ministry Conference will focus on engaging Christian ministry in Appalachia for God's glory in a world impacted by COVID-19. The day starts at 9 a.m. and includes breakout sessions, lunch, Q&A sessions, Appalachian storytelling, and of course, you'll hear from keynote speaker Dr. Tom Cheney, Rex Howe from Tri-State Bible College, and Matt Shamlin from the Appalachian Ministry Institute. Again, the Appalachian Ministry Conference is March 24, 2022 at Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio. To register, visit tsbc.edu and click on Apply Now or call 770-3772520. Let's zero in on rural movements. So maybe pockets, maybe movements of prayer and revival that are lesser known, but that as a student of revival and prayer, you're aware of. Well, think about the story of one man, for example, named Samuel Davies. He was a young fellow in New Jersey, and he was saved in the midst of the early Second Great Awakening. He went to seminary up there at Princeton, which was the College of New Jersey when it was founded. And he was a typical young man saved in the revival who wanted to serve the Lord and, and had a missionary spirit. And so uh, his denomination, which was the Presbyterians, they sent him to Virginia. And he trekked down to Virginia. And he, over the space of 10 years, founded a circle of churches north and east of Richmond, Virginia. Seven churches over 10 years. He started with just little meetings of Bible studies. But in each place, the Lord worked powerfully, and these were all just small towns. And for 10 years, he pastored seven churches, built them up to, you know, it was hundreds and hundreds of people before all was said and done. And then before he left there to return to Princeton Seminary and become the president, this was a very capable man, a very powerful preacher. 
In fact, he was offered the leading Presbyterian church in Richmond, Virginia, and he turned it down just to do this small work with these seven churches. And he did it for about 10 years, settled a pastor in each place, and then went back to become president of Princeton Seminary. Unfortunately, he died at an untimely age. But there's a lot of stories about this, especially in New Jersey, as the revival was blossoming. There weren't enough preachers or pastors to go out and found churches. So they began to train them in the log cabin movement where a pastor would just take, say, five or 10 young men and train them for pastoral ministry in log cabins and then send them out to these rural areas to penetrate the countryside. Jonathan Edwards said that revival is when God's presence is burning the countryside. And so, yes, these were very much rural movements, you know, up until you know, 1850 or so, and then you get into New York, which had 800,000 people at that time, which is a large city. You know, America was largely a rural nation. And men sacrificially went into these places that nobody had heard of and where there were no churches and then out into the frontier to the West. And they founded churches and God was working powerfully. And so we really see it as a movement that especially the first and second great awakenings, largely in small towns and rural areas. Even in the Lamas Prayer Revival of 1858, which was largely initiated in the urban areas, J. Edwin Orr, who was a scholar on revival, wrote his doctoral dissertation on church growth during the third great awakening. He studied the denominational records of all the states you know, that were swept up in this revival. I mean, it's kind of a pedantic study to read, but he documented that every American denomination grew as a result of church planting during that period of 1858 up to 1900. Much of the vibrancy of the church in the 20th century of America drew its strength from that revival. Many of the institutions that all of us have benefited from Christian institutions came out of that revival. And he traced all the records to all the small towns and rural areas where churches were planted and people were brought in. Just take a trip sometime and ride on the two-lane highways and go into the little towns and you will see the architecture of these churches. Some of them aren't churches anymore. You know, some of them are tea houses or restaurants or somebody's made a house out of them, but you can see the massive church planting that was done in rural areas as a result of these revivals. Now, we're trying to do that today. I really appreciate all these guys who go out and work in, you know, unheard of areas and small towns and rural areas. I've pastored in extreme rural areas, but what we're missing is the power of God today. We're working hard we're sacrificing, we're doing a good work, but we need to pray down God's powerful blessing on these things we're doing. Jeff, my family, we traveled to Virginia Beach several months ago, and on our way back, we kind of made our way through the middle part of Virginia, and we had traveled, and we wanted to arrive in Lynchburg just the following day, and so we stopped in Farmville, Virginia, and I saw a sign that said Hampton Sydney College. I told my family, I want to go see Hampton Sydney College. And so we went over to Hampton Sydney, and it's an extremely rural place out in the middle of nowhere. 
And I looked at the signs and there were several historical markers for different things that had happened at Hampton, Sydney. And none of them addressed the very reason that I wanted to go to Hampton, Sydney College, because Hampton, Sydney is credited as being one of the places that this, as you have said, the, the movement of God in a rural place where we see that take place, that one of the, maybe we could say it this way, the sparks of the Second Great Awakening started there in Farmville, Virginia, in a very rural place. There wasn't a single marker that recognized what was going on there. And isn't it incredible, though, to think that God could move in such a significant way in a very rural, small place and change the world? Now, the world does not recognize what kind of impact that that had. But as you think about those rural movements, what would you say about encountering God today in a rural church and in revival and prayer? I appreciate the sacrificial labor of our pastors who are out there preaching the word and working with rural people and discipling and evangelizing and putting out a good church program where people can be welcomed and encouraged and strengthened and taught. All of that is our daily work and we carry on with it and we do it faithfully. But what I would say to that pastor is don't forget the concept of revival. You know, revival is not an ordinary season. It's an extraordinary season. And some of our labor needs to be to encourage those extraordinary seasons of revival and not just be content with ordinary, good, solid church work. So we don't want to lose sight of that concept. Uh, Tim Keller says that revival is not looking for signs and wonders and the extraordinary manifestations of the Holy Spirit. It's looking for the intensification of the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit, which is the conviction of sin, a powerful experience of the new birth, holiness of life, a cleansing and a reorienting of one's life. And so what we do is we labor in our ordinary work, which is what we are called to do, but then we don't lose sight of the fact that God can come and ignite that and do something extraordinary. I was saved in revival as a young man of 19 in a Roman Catholic community where 80 to 85% of the population was Roman Catholic, and we had little dinky Protestant churches around, but nobody paid much attention to those guys. And suddenly the Spirit of God came in there and just swept up large numbers of young people. And there are many of us today out in ministry. All of that happened in a very small town in a rural part of the country. And this is what we are laboring for, not only to do ordinary work, but to look up to God and say, God, come and visit us in an extraordinary season of revival. So I would say to that pastor, yes, you're doing a good work. And as long as, you know, you have breath in your body, keep preaching the word, putting out a good church program, ministering to people, you know, welcoming souls in. But don't lose sight of that extraordinary season when God can really come and pray for that. Teach your people to pray for that. And uh, I would also encourage that guy to avoid trying to just imitate revival. You know, we have this thing called revivalism where, you know, you ride down the road and you go by a church and it says revival next week. Well, you can't schedule revival. What they're really saying is we're having special meetings 
for prayer or for preaching or for evangelism, but that's not revival. Those are good things. I'm a big believer in special meetings and so forth, where you're trying to do something uh, with your people and so forth and with your community, but you can't schedule revival. Revival is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. A distinction between revival and revivalism. And I think sometimes in our revivalism, we've gotten a little carried away where we're trying to work something up when really we have to pray it down. That's it. Uh, this is hitting home, isn't it, Matt, for us in Appalachia, for sure. Jeff, this wasn't on our plan, but let's talk about this for just a minute. In our last two episodes, we've interviewed local pastors to talk about the state of the church in Appalachia during COVID. And the way I'd like to sort of connect these three episodes is returning to one of the first things we talked about, the burden of God. As you've dissected the burden of God in prayer during this very interesting season in America, what's he saying to you through his word and in prayer, in your prayer closet? I just think this whole COVID thing has brought a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of conflict, and it's exposing what we are, and it isn't pretty. And I just think it's time for pastors to go back to the basics, preach the word, love people, and call them to prayer. You know, maybe God is unfreezing our society and its pathways. And it's a time when the church needs to come together and say, God, we don't know what to do. What God is saying to me is, we don't have the answers. Our slick mega churches in the urban areas and our even our good rural churches that are doing a good job, we don't have the answers for this thing. And we know the one who does. And so why instead of making some big plan where you and I have a strategy session and call in the church consultant to tell us what to do, why don't we get on our knees and ask God to do something? So this is where I'm at. The senior pastor of the church, where I was senior pastor for many years, recently called me back to the same church. And one of the things he said is, there's no way forward in our country without spiritual awakening. So I want you to come back to our church and give guidance to our prayer ministry that we can begin to pray for spiritual awakening. Isn't there something when we think of prayer that's largely unfulfilling? about prayer, that prayer doesn't always feel like you're doing anything. There's something in the flesh that appeals to the activity, even if it's doing far less than would be prayer. So as we think about pastors who are out there today, what would you say to them about how to get started? They recognize the need to preach. They recognize the need to pray. But Preaching is a far more fulfilling task because preaching is something that I can put my hand to the plow and do. How does a pastor get started to reinvigorate that prayer ministry in his church? Number one, it starts with you, brother. You know, it starts with where you are. Where are you with God? Where are you with your discipline and your quiet time? The flesh does not want to pray. The flesh wants to do something much easier than to pray. The world doesn't want us to pray. It's always calling to us. And the devil doesn't want us to pray. He's going to say to us, what are you praying for? That's not going to do any good. Can't you see you should be doing something else? And so the world, the flesh, and the devil are against us every time we go into the place of prayer. But that has to be conquered. The flesh has to be subdued. The world has to be quieted. And we have to tell the devil to go away. 
and then we need to pray. So I would start as a pastor with a significant quiet time. I would begin to read about revival and about the life of prayer, read some of the old stuff every day, read a little bit, spend some time in prayer. There's an African pastor. He's got a big fat 800 page book on prayer. And one of the things he does, he said, anybody who's starting with prayer should start with 15 minutes, seven and a half minutes of Bible reading, seven and a half minutes of prayer. And he says, if you do that for 30 days, you will find it's not enough. And pretty soon it will be 30 minutes. And if you do 30 minutes for 30 days, you'll find that that's not enough. And pretty soon you'll be meeting with God in a significant way. And you can carry this into your church. Now, as far as how to start a successful prayer meeting in a local church, I would say, you tell me, and then we'll both know, because I've been laboring at it my whole career. And, you know, I've made some progress here and there, but in our self-satisfied, prosperous culture, it's a struggle. But if you can start with a few, like I came back to our church here in Illinois, and I went into the prayer meeting the week before I began to lead it in my new role. And I went in there and, hey, it wasn't a big group, but there were some good prayers in there. And I said to myself, I can work with this. Let's get going. And so now it's my job to try to build this up, encourage people. You want to be teaching on prayer. You want to be encouraging them. People need encouragement. They need so much encouragement. And so, uh, yeah, it's a challenge. Maybe one final question for you and on what you just said about a successful prayer meeting in a local church. Now, when I was with you at Schofield and you said, we're going to have a prayer meeting, I thought I knew what that meant. I, in fact, did not know what that meant. Talk a little bit about the structure of a prayer meeting, because that's something that you kind of have an architecture for experiencing God together in the prayer meeting. The old style of prayer meeting that I learned as a young believer in the church was you go in and the pastor does a half an hour of biblical exposition. You know, we haven't even applied the sermon from Sunday, but on Wednesday night, we're going to have another half hour of biblical exposition, you know, and then we're going to say, okay, who has a prayer request? We're going to have an organ recital. You know, every organ that's ill in the church, we're going to hear about it. And then we're going to have, you know, who needs a job. And then we've got a discussion about who's hiring. And then somebody finally says, hey, we only got five minutes left. We better pray. You know what I mean? This is how it goes. Well, no, I want to have a God-centered meeting, a worship-based prayer meeting. Before we ask God for anything, we're going to give him praise. And any teaching we do is going to be relatively brief on the nature of God, the nature of prayer, the nature of the Christian life, encouraging things. We're going to have a lot of variety about how we bring requests before God. Every prayer meeting is going to have a theme. And instead of just going into a lot of detail here, I would encourage anybody interested in this to look into a couple of resources. The writings of a man named Daniel Henderson, a book called Fresh Encounters, where he outlines God-centered prayer meetings. And then also I would encourage everybody to read the writings of Jim Simbola, who has built his church on prayer in Brooklyn. I think those two resources would be very helpful, but it's worship-based, it's God-centered, it has a theme, it's more of a prayer service. And there is a way to build into that prayer requests for the local community and for one another. You don't have to totally exclude that kind of thing. That can be brought in, but it isn't the focus. So we don't want a man-centered meeting. We want a God-centered meeting. 
going to be a blessing as we continue conversations here in Appalachia about looking for the glory of God in our communities. Prayer is uh, part of that journey of looking for the glory of God, developing an agreement with God's burden for our area. We're a needy community. We've got churches without pastors. We've got churches closing. We've got addiction and broken families. We need the Lord in Appalachia. We are uh, hosting the Appalachian Ministry Conference on March 24th. And one of our guests is going to be Pastor Jeff Van Gotham. He's going to be talking about prayer and revival in the rural church at that meeting. You may remember the old hymn, Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Many times we try to make things happen on our own. But when it comes to revival, Dr. Van Gotham said it just right. We don't need to work something up. We need to pray it down. As you've listened to this podcast and revival in your church is a topic you'd like to learn more about, send Rex an email at rex.how at tsbc.edu or email Matt at the Appalachian Ministry Institute at matt.shamlin at tsbc.edu. The Level Paths Podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.